the scripture for this morning is Luke 24, 13 through 39. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God, and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed, and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while we talked to, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened, opened to us with scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning. I, uh, someone asked if I was excited about today, and my answer was uh, not necessarily more so than typical Sunday, and then I wept all through the worship songs, <laughs> because it's good to sing with the saints of the risen Christ. There are two reasons that I think Jesus' teachings will last forever frankly. One is they're incredible. They're incredible in how they work together, and they're true. One of the many things about the Emmaus story that's so remarkable is how similar it is 
strikingly similar, according to the ESV Study Bible notes, to Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. And so what I'm going to try and do is utilize the structure of Emmaus and the structure of the feeding to help us understand the gospel. And therefore our minds come more alive to who Jesus is. Our hearts are burning, in a good way, within us like they did when Jesus was explaining to them the scriptures. So what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus and when he fed the 5,000 and with us is he receives us. In Matthew chapter 11, we have the only record of Jesus' description from his voice and mind of his heart. And it's that he's gentle and lowly, and lowly is arms outstretched. Do you believe that here and here? Good. And do you believe that he rose from the dead? If I say, he is risen, and you say, your mind and your heart are even now being grasped by Jesus, and it's both. You see it with his followers, did not our hearts burn within us, but also their mind. As Jesus explained how the Old Testament pointed to the need for his earthly ministry, sacrificial death, and resurrection. Every decent theologian who's ever written a decent theological book is attempting to give voice to what did Jesus say on that seven-mile walk. And the mind aspect's important. You know, my emotions are very engaged because, well, you guys are awesome. Thanks. But my mind is engaged also. And I don't know what this sounds like to you, but I know for years people have asked, what do I do with my own doubts? Well, the most important thing that we can do with our doubts is doubt them. The most profound answer to my doubts for at least the last decade has been the historical fact of the resurrection of Christ. I don't have any photos, but I do have the Apostle Paul describing who Jesus appeared to. And he's describing it, and then he corrects himself. This is in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, most of the 500 people that Jesus appeared to first the women and, and Peter and the, he says the twelve because he's referring to the group of the disciples. Judas wasn't there anymore. And then he says to James, the brother of Jesus, which is really kind because James was not for Jesus until Jesus rose from the dead and his brother, half-brother, could no longer resist, real, resist him as Messiah. Then he appears lastly to Paul. And then Paul corrects himself and he says, but some of those people have died. Meaning you could go interview 491 people about the risen Christ right now. Jesus receives those walking with him. He receives them at table. He received the 4,000 and the 5,000 in the Gospels. He was mighty indeed. The Emmaus story, they remember that in verse 19. And the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000 and what happened on the Emmaus road are true historical events. And because Jesus is such an incredible teacher, they also teach us something about his heart towards us, which is that he receives us without condition on our part, only because of his gentle and accessible heart and love, he receives us. And he blesses, remember? He blesses the bread. He feeds the 4,000, and when he feeds the 5,000, and this is when they recognize him in Emmaus, 
is when he takes the bread and blesses it. One of the things that strikes me every year about the resurrection stories is um, for the, this year, how strikingly similar it is to the feeding of the 5,000. Every year, how mellow the stories are. You know the one where he cooks breakfast for the disciples on the beach? Such a beautiful story. You know, it's when Peter jumps in and swims and the fish is all ready and they eat it because they're hungry. They're so mellow. And this is Jesus. I was thinking about all the miraculous things that he did. I think, my, I think the miracle I wish I could have witnessed is the one where he raises the little girl from the dead. And it's not just because that's really beautiful and everyone's weeping, but also because they laughed at him and he kicked them all out of the house. But we don't know how he kicked them all out of the house. That part of the story, I, I just want to know. Like, did he go, leave? Or did he just like motion? What happened? What about calming the sea? Or raising Lazarus from the dead? Or walking on water? Or healing uh, the man that was lowered? Which miracle would you have liked to have witnessed? Now, in one sense, we probably would like to witness the resurrection miracles because it's the resurrected Jesus, but they're not spectacular. They're very, very, very mellow in comparison. In this one, the only supernatural thing that Jesus does, as far as we can tell, is keep them from knowing who he was. If you wonder why they didn't recognize him, it's because he didn't want them to yet. It says they were kept from recognizing him. Then he vanishes. Now, for us, that'd be amazing. But for Jesus, relatively mellow. Why? Because most of the beauty of the Christian life, this is not the entire reason, but a big part of it, most of the beauty of the Christian life is found in the daily acts of fidelity and love from us in response to his love. The mundane but beautiful and incredibly powerful in the kingdom, things available to us are forgiveness, generosity, kindness to others, being willing and able to actually reconcile relationships. Jesus receives and he blesses. Do you know that he calls you beloved? Do you know it? Here and here and here. Is it all right with you? Does it make you uncomfortable? And I'm, I'm, I'm using a literal story that happened in history multiple times. And I'm, I'm using it for, as a metaphor because Jesus used it as a metaphor with those who were walking with him to Emmaus. He doesn't just bless the bread. He also blesses you and calls you beloved Can you handle it? Can you receive it? Can you allow it to grip your heart and thereby be changed by his love? And the funny thing is, this will sound like emotive language to some of you, overly emotive language to some of you, but here's the thing. Scripturally, when we come to grips with, or we come to be grasped by the fact that Jesus, because of his work, when he looks at us, when the Father looks at us, he sees a beloved son, beloved daughter, That not only warms our hearts, that not only calms our anxious minds, it leads us to action. How else could we learn kindness in relationship, generosity, forgiveness, small acts as we would esteem it of justice, if not by the motivation of God calling us beloved? Jesus not only receives and blesses, he breaks also. 
He breaks death. Though he has not swept up all the pieces of it, he has defeated death. And we're waiting for it to be swept away and no more, to be totally worn out and removed. Jesus breaks bread, the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000, and here at Emmaus, and that's the moment where he allowed them to see who he was. And there are a thousand scriptural references to the metaphor for our lives, which is he allows us, it's going to feel like a semantic difference, but I believe it's crucial. He allows us to be broken by our own decisions and by the world, even by the evil one, but he blocks us from being able to see when the evil one is and is not allowed to um, be near us. He blocks us from that because of our own limits and how we would resent and not understand. The world and ourselves break us, don't they? And in the description of repentance in 2 Corinthians essentially says there's a, binary, there's a binary option to humans. There's worldly regret and there's godly regret. And when we break ourselves through our decisions, when we harm someone close to us or harm ourselves through sin, we either can feel shame and regret about that and it'll just get worse according to 2 Corinthians 7, or we turn to Jesus with our brokenness. And sometimes it's not our fault. I was diagnosed with uh, cancer in 2009, and I'm cured. It's not a kind that I caused. It wasn't lung cancer because I was a smoker. It was circumstantial. And Jesus didn't give me cancer. Jesus was never not sovereign. Get the double negative? So he's fully in charge. But there's a causative link in the way that some of us describe suffering, and it's wrong. Jesus didn't cause my sickness. He doesn't do that. It would be entirely the opposite of his character to do that. Some of you are like, it doesn't matter. Like, who, who cares who caused it? Well, I've had a lot of people sit in my office, misunderstand this, with tears streaming on their face, because they long to understand the heart of God, and they misunderstood it, because someone taught them wrong. Jesus allows us to be broken for all sorts of reasons. One of the ways is to teach us about our need for him and then teach us to act like his followers and therein bring kingdom light to bear all over and throughout the world. My wife and I were back in our, uh, the back of our house where our washing machine is, mudroom, right? And we, she showed me a coffee stain on the wall, six and a half feet up. And we're like, how did this get here? And then she did, for a pregnant woman, an amazing impression of me holding a coffee cup in one hand and putting my shoes on in the other. And we both laughed, because that's how the coffee got six and a half feet off the ground. And I'm using a silly example on purpose. What do I get to do? I get to hear her. She already knows I'm sorry, so I'm actually practicing not saying sorry unless she needs, because she knows me. She knows I'm sorry. I'm not even asking for her forgiveness because she already knows that I'm repenting about the coffee by using travel mugs and putting them on the ground. And that's a very, 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 very small, perhaps seemingly insignificant example. Though those of you that are married, I wonder if you, you know, I mean, you kind of understand. 
And it's a way I get to practice resurrection in my house. Allow myself to feel the pain of that moment and then repent unto life. Is how the Westminster Confession talks about it. You can read 2 Corinthians 7 for a description of repentance because that's what's available to us. Because of Jesus, we know what to do in life and in relationship. And that's a profound and powerful kingdom way of practicing resurrection. One of the things that I don't fully know how to lead us in dealing with as we celebrate Holy Week is the importance of Friday late afternoon and yesterday. All of us have been experiencing a significant amount of disorientation. Am I right? All of us have been either ignoring or going through collective and acute grief. I don't know anyone that hasn't had a grief on top of the collective grief of COVID. Maybe there is somebody. You're fine. You're actually totally fine, but I don't know you. You can let me know. And as we look at the model of Jesus' teaching, what he did in the 4,000 and the 5,000 and here at Emmaus, it harkens back to what had happened literally yesterday. His followers were very sad. I love that in their sadness, they're still hospitable to a stranger. I think that's really cool. They're sad. You have been sad, and I've been sad. And one of the wonderful, wonderful provisions of the gospel of Jesus Christ is what to do with our sadness. Lament it and grieve it, and then receive the new life. Some seasons that new life is longer in coming. But you have the opportunity to practice resurrection. I'll show you in just a moment six scriptures that explain and help us and imply that we get to enjoy the power of the resurrection every day. The model is Jesus receives and he blesses. He breaks the bread and then he gives back, right? He takes the meager offering that the disciples have and turns it into a bountiful feast for thousands of people. At Emmaus, he doesn't need to multiply the food, so he doesn't because they had enough, but he gives back. And this is one of the parts of the gospel we have got to understand, and we have to understand it in its entirety as best we're able. I asked a friend of mine who's not a follower of Jesus, what would make faith beautiful? You've got to be pretty good friends with someone before you ask a question like that, and I had, we're pretty good friends. And he said if it wasn't self-sacrificial, and it is self-sacrificial, we do die to self, then what happens? New Life. I'm tempted, I can't tell if the camera can tell. I'm pointing at the flowers. When we're crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, then what happens? We are given back our more true self. Who we more truly are. Are made in the image of Godness. Our false self is driven out. Jesus gives back. What does he give back? A kingdom life instead of one of worldly regret and shame. Gives back kingdom. How do we receive this? How do we enjoy it? These ordinary 
means of grace. Song, scripture, friendship, the water of baptism done once, wine and the bread, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and we receive. And Jesus does this that we might live. Romans 6, 4 says this, and and I'm going to go through six scriptures. And I'm going to encourage you to highlight or underline or rewrite Romans 6, 4 and put it somewhere where you'll see it at least once a week because Paul fully expects that the resurrection of Jesus is maybe celebrated. Who knows if he even cared about that. But he expected, whether we celebrate it once a year or not, he expected the power of the resurrection to guide us and warm our hearts and free our minds into life with him every day. So you need to come up with a way of reminding yourself, which will probably also mean utilizing the gospel to speak to your false self, maybe even naming your false self. My false self's name is Ned, as in not as helpful as you think you are, Ned. And I remind Ned about the good news of Jesus all the time. Maybe that would be a tactic that would help you too. But, but my tactics aside... Hear these scriptures. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. What does that mean? We'll come back to that. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. That word for life is the zoe, not bios. Flourishing life. Ephesians, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. A letter to the Philippians, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Colossians, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Again, Colossians, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You with me? You believe that? I'm thankful to Eugene Peterson, whose book on living the resurrection pointed out these scriptures. Paul fully expects that the power of the resurrection, which is in you even now, if you call Jesus Lord and have received him by faith, fills you with the newness of life. What does that mean? Well, it looks like the small acts that Christians do that aren't esteemed much in the world, like forgiveness and generosity, kindness and justice, mercy. What's happening in you is that's the expression of the newness of life that Jesus has given you. He promised it prior to the resurrection, and then on Friday, late afternoon, and Saturday, we doubted, and then Sunday, he rises from the dead that we might receive and have forever newness of life. Would you pray with me?
Jesus, we praise and thank you for life. We ask that we receive it. Would our minds be grasped by your truth? Would our hearts be moved by your heart? And would our very beings long to follow you truly in all that we say and do? Amen.